Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with our research director, Tom Ferguson, as we approach the 15th anniversary of the Lehman Crisis. The Lehman Crisis was a very profound event. It was like a wake-up call on the relationship between economy and governance. Tom, thanks for joining me. Well, I'm glad to be here, although I have to confess uh, the last few decades have been somewhat traumatic and in no small part because of things we're going to talk about. It's almost like talking about a uh, Halloween party that went just terribly wrong. <laughs> I mean, there. Well, yeah. the, I mean, the striking thing about the layman to me is it's like the it's like the paradigm case for lots of stuff that has happened uh, since, um, but it's also like the granddaddy of them all. I mean, it's very rare that one right. single event just collapses the whole financial world, mm -hmm. but it did it. Yes. Uh, and they had a lot of aiding and abetting and helpers, a lot of regulators, a lot of bankers, lots of other folks, politicians. But this, uh, yeah, it's a tr completely traumatic event. And like most traumatic events, uh, I have to tell you, Rob, I'm not overwhelmed by modern press coverage of this, uh, or even most modern scholarship. In that sense, I think I, I'm actually, I can say, hey, for, I'm actually glad to be here because this subject still needs a good airing. Well, how would I say? Whenever a stressful experience takes place that creates what you might call some shameful uh, awareness of actions, it breeds ostriches. And there are a lot of people who want to keep their head in the sand, yeah. particularly in the aftermath of the failure of SVB Bank and other issues. But this, as we'll talk about today, it goes into other things, the avoidance of climate change, given its ur urgency and other things. What does governance, what does media, what does expertise do? Right now, all the polls, whether Richard Edelman or Gallup or whatever you show, that the faith in governance and expertise in the United States and in many other countries is in tatters. Yeah, so, which just tells us, I think, that you know the world's not crazy at some fundamental level. Yeah, they, there's a lot uh, to be suspicious about. Maybe we should go back, though, and retrace the sort of formative events in Lehman, remembering yes. that you know the, the anniversary here, we're, we're not celebrating, we're commemorating. Right. It's September the 15th, uh, 2008. That's when they filed for bankruptcy in the early morning hours of that. But Lehman was an investment bank. It's sort of like the disappearance of dinosaurs, actually. I mean, all those mm -hmm. dinosaurs turned into commercial banks or they weren't in business in a few days later, mm -hmm. uh, the old investment banks. But fundamentally, this is a story about, surprise, financial deregulation. Financial deregulation that starts 20 years or more before. Mm -hmm. um, 
is constantly, I mean, if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's going on right now in the Congress in regard to both private equ equity regulation, uh, where the Securities and Exchange Commission and Gary Gensler have been pushing for regulation, and large numbers of congressmen and women on both sides of the aisle are pushing back. And then, of course, the crypto uh, regulation craze, where, mm -hmm. I mean, crypto is sort of an amazing, it's like the, the little koala bear parent of layman in in this sense it's that uh, crypto was a case where you could see this was going to end in disaster the notion that you could just let all these folks do whatever they wanted and sell whenever they wanted under uh, very poor information conditions with wouldn't end in tears it's obvious then it did. People have lost billions on crypto, but this thing, like a, the koala bear, is still walking around Congress, and a lot of people are very happy to pick it up and embrace it. But yeah. we better come back. I was going uh, to say the, the siren songs of temptation yeah. ask you to create earmuffs, and we didn't create the earmuffs with regard to crypto, and we experienced yeah, a, a calamity. But like you said, these are echoes that we'll come back to towards yeah. the end of this conversation. Let's go back, I'll just say, to the precursors that led to Lehman, the deregulation that was taking place in the financial sector, faith in unfettered markets, lack of faith in the state as an architect or, or enforcer, and the, what you might call, warning signs that came a little bit earlier like within the same year when Bear Stearns was taken over by yeah. J.P. Morgan. And many politicians at that time, because I had worked as the chief economist of the Senate Banking Committee, said to me, oh, okay, is that over? And I said, no, there's a whole lot on the horizon. I didn't name Lehman to them at the time, but I said, there's a yeah. lot of turmoil on Wall Street. And they were saying to me, we're doing lots of fundraising on Wall Street. We can't start to repair this. And I said, when are you going to? Because it's got to be repaired. After the election, I said, you may not get to the they election. Lehman came to our, how would I say, uh, focal point and yeah. vividly affected society before any election took place. So in that respect, I was... Uh, yeah, I, I know was, they made uh, Hollywood movies out of this, but in fact, it was like a Hollywood movie because they all yeah. thought they could get past the election. Right. And, and they couldn't. Right. They were caught dead right in the middle, right after the Republican convention had just occurred, which was right. a giant free market celebration with everybody saying we had to end bailouts. You know, and by then, mm -hmm. yes, we had just bailed out Bear Stearns, um, and then we had also bailed out Freddie and Fannie mm -hmm. um, in the, uh, the sort of mixed enterprises, those government yeah. sort of... It, it, but right. let's, zoom, let's zoom in on Lehman itself. Yeah. You've been through a book recently by Lawrence Ball that uh, is a very good deep dive into many of the, the we might say, the context, the circumstances, and activities. Why don't yeah, you I describe like the, Lehman I like the itself? Ball, I like the Ball book a lot, uh, mm -hmm. actually, uh, though there's some other stuff, including those, you know, those two papers we wrote for the International Journal of Political Economy, Right. reached exactly the right conclusion that this was basically a political call, uh, that there wasn't any clear uh, reason it couldn't have been bailed out. Mm. Uh, mm. What Ball's book shows you is that Lehman was maybe even arguably uh, 
solvent right in the short run, uh, but for sure was probably solvent if you if you took not mark to market stories, but over the somewhat longer run, and which might call get back to a normal market. You could have bridged loaned it if you like and saved yeah. it. They chose not to, and sort of Ball does a good job of showing, I think, just. But it, is, it does really say pretty much what we said, and it does app, it, it leaves out the political party stuff. The fact that the Republican convention had just happened, that the Republican nominee was saying no more bailouts, that, and, and that you know, the, it clearly got to Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary. Mm -hmm. um, it's clear, and Ball does a very good job on this. Uh, he shows you the decisions basically made in Washington. The, the legal relationship w between the, if you like, the presidency and the Federal Reserve, it was the Federal Reserve's call on whether to bail it out uh, there. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, Paulson, as the Treasury Secretary, just told him no, no, no bailout. Um, and that's what the, the Fed and uh, the Fed both in, both Bernanke as head of the Fed and Geithner as head of the New York Fed fell in line with that. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say Ball makes the case on that. It's absolutely... Mm -hmm. Uh, right. It's a political story. Now, let's... Well, let me just interrupt for a second, sure. because there's kind of a, how do you say, for people who aren't immersed right. in finance, yeah. I'll, I'll use an analogy. There's a game called musical chairs. There are more people than there are chairs. And you know when the music stops, somebody's going to get thrown yeah, out of the Chuck game. I think Chuck Prince, who was at Citibank, right, actually used the, exactly. uh, that analogy exactly. uh, uh, about how they had to keep... Uh, dancing as long as the music was playing. In other words, just That's keep right. buying this junk. And what you knew when yeah. Lehman came into the crosshairs of concern was that if you made them alone, it was analogous to putting another chair in the room temporarily. Yeah. But without a loan to Lehman and them crashing, it might wreck some of the other chairs in the room and take more people out of the game. Yeah. And that were, that was the environment in which people were, um, how would I say, anxious because the propagation from Lehman's losses to others were being envisioned in scenarios at places like Citibank or J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley or whatever. Everybody's looking at their, what I'll say, cross exposures with other large entities. Yeah, the, it is interesting. A, a point Ball makes in his book, too, is that the Fed... Uh, almost surely underestimated the effects of Lehman. He's very compelling on that point, despite mm -hmm. testimony. Like Bernanke keeps saying, he always knew it would be a disaster. That's not consistent with either his behavior or what he was saying in the immediate mm. aftermath uh, of that stuff. But sort of, um, I, I think the big story here that one wants to focus on is the regulators, when you, they had tons of detailed information about all kinds of things really detailed stuff. The New York Fed studies of this and mm -hmm. that. Uh, but they weren't, uh, they couldn't draw conclusions from it. They weren't able to extract significant generalizations. Instead, what everybody did is they sat there and repeated the basic mantras about how, well, deregulation is basically okay. We probably, I mean, the, the, what Bernanke actually said in the immediate aftermath of the collapse, which is what he said just before it, was we've given the markets time to prepare, so this shouldn't be so bad. Then the whole world collapsed, um, and sort of. Um, so you put these two things together: uh, a, a somewhat a tendency to underestimate, to take 
comfort in um, received wisdom and shibboleths, the stuff that is mm -hmm. endlessly echoed in the press by politicians and, and, and its giant echo chamber that this is really fundamentally a good thing. And then you underestimate the consequences of that. Um, and then finally you have to step in to save it. It's a sort of catastrophic sequence in which you, you first have a disaster build, then you can step in to save it. Um, that in turn just creates huge numbers of additional problems. I mean, obviously, you know, you had a world depression for a while, uh, and all, I mean, people, I mean, it's just, we won't even get into the, how the consequences of depression, I mean, you know that if you're trying to go out and do a job market and do a depression, it's not great. Um, and people went hungry, starved, died in the, the developing world. Uh, I mean, there's just no end of, of catastrophes here. Um, and, but um, they also haven't dealt with the giant problem of moral hazard. That is to say, er almost everybody had intimations of mortality in this. That is to say, they could the lightning would flash and they could say, you know, we have to be really a little bit careful. People were most, though not everybody, Lehman was late to do this, though it, it started to do it too, was trying to sell off some of its more dangerous um, assets. Um, and um, they would sit there um, and know that this could lead to disaster, and they just kept going anyway, as you su suggest. And the problem is, is then when the thing goes to pieces, we, the taxpayers, have to pick them up. We, mm -hmm. in effect, what you, what the, what Lehman showed you, it's the absolute paradigm case of modern, meaning contemporary now financial structures that are uh, fragile and can only uh, exist they can't exist without it for a whole day they found that out it was one day I, i'm not a barney frank fan but frank got off one great line he said that was a free market day you know uh, <laughs> september, september the 15th we had one day of the really free market yeah. uh and uh, the, whole was world, an avalanche. the whole world went down <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, so the dilemma yeah. that you face, you're a policymaker and you're saying we have faith in markets. Markets decide value. Markets help us be efficient in the use of resource. Markets foment innovation, rising tide to raise all boats. But in the case of a financial market, if people think there are what I'll call conjectural guarantees around the moral hazard means they may, what you might call, be more aggressive in riskier areas until they realize it isn't going to work. Then they create a stampede when they're coming back out. And when the stampede occurs, it doesn't just affect the balance sheets or the companies for having made a wrong decision. It has ramifications for the health of the entire economy. Yeah. And when we bail them, people know they can take big uh, loss, they can take big risks, yeah. some of them will lose, occasionally somebody goes down, like Lehman went down. Those folks didn't enjoy that experience. Yes. But almost everybody else got bailed out, and they got to keep bonuses, they didn't get fired, um, they, uh, yeah. just stuff that should have been retired wasn't, 
Um, and most bank officials just lived happily ever after, literally happily ever after. Mm -hmm. yeah, even some of the layman senior folks, I think, probably uh, existed in a just fine condition by comparison with most of the population. Yes, and, uh, Joe Stiglitz said the polluters got paid. Yes, and yes. And the rest of us paid the bill. Yeah, and people, that's exactly the condition of the financial system today. I mean, they, people know that if the thing collapses, they still take risks. They're pushing for ever more deregulation. Didn't like, I mean, as soon as, I mean, within a year or two after the Dodd-Frank legislation was passed, which was passed a year or so after Lehman uh, went down to try to reform some stuff of it, some, some parts of that, it was watered down with no small... Uh, help from people like Barney Frank. I mean, that's well documented mm -hmm. in some Newsweek articles and things. Um, but they, it was an improvement. The Dodd-Frank was an improvement over what you had in most things, so we probably should come back to the one really big thing about bailouts that needs some discussion there. But the, the point on uh, that stuff is uh, they never solved the moral hazard problem. Right. And so guys, the, the music, you're still dancing with the music, and people want less capital within the next two or three years. Um, you know, Ina has a pretty decent paper on this, I think, because I helped co-author it, uh, on showing you how the, even the Democrats in Congress that initially voted for Dodd-Frank changed their mind under an influx of money from banks and other financial uh, mm -hmm. groups uh, that wanted in on that. And the, so the, the continuous noise about let's have less capital, don't make us report our holdings, don't make us reveal them, um, and yeah. let's do crypto, which could be thought of as let's put everything in a paper bag that no one can trace and then hope everything turns out for the better. And let's give the paper bag to everybody who wants one uh, to sort of go uh, push it out there. I yeah. mean, it's like, how crazy is this? Yeah. Well, we had a number of scholars we worked with. Ed Kane. Yes. He showed yeah. that once the notion of what I've called the mother of all moral hazards, that too big to fail banks will be bailed out. Yeah. What it did is it took the default risk premium off their funding costs, gave them a competitive advantage against smaller banks, facilitated concentration, and facilitated them taking bigger and riskier positions no, themselves. Right. Now, Ed, nobody's work has been more important than Ed Kane's. Right. Um, and Ed used to talk to me. I mean, I Ed. Kane and I were quite good friends, and we would talk yeah. a lot, and we still have an unfinished manuscript of his, and I'm trying to figure out quite how we deal with that. Um, but um, Ed would express to me his exasperation with other groups um, that did not want to necessarily publish all his papers, that sometimes would refuse to do it. Um, and I mean, there was nobody probably more widely respected. He was a you know a, a significant member of that shadow open market committee for yes. many years, which was impeccably orthodox in, in most of its uh, thinking and reading, except that they were actually serious on trying to regulate banks. Um, and uh, so, uh, no, Ed's work is fundamental, and you can judge, in my opinion the seriousness of most modern writing on finance by how seriously they engage with Keynes' finding, especially the papers that show you how the big banks' uh, stock market premia uh, reflect that advantage that they're too big to fail. A very mm -hmm. interesting question for me, it was something that Ed and I talked a lot about in the last uh, few years of his life, 
um, was a after the sort of all the current uh, disasters, you know, the rounds of COVID where, where we had financial markets go down, then riotously up. And so it was how big, how much bigger was that moral hazard bubble blowing, if you like? Mm -hmm. How, how, were other types of entities, say private equity, at least the large ones, because there's lots, there's lots of small private equity too, were they becoming too big to fail? And on an international basis, what, what, how does this work? Uh, Ed was perfectly clear that the Americans were the, uh, if in some fundamental sense, the guarantors of the European financial system through the swaps agreements. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, this this stuff, it's it's not sufficiently studied. And amazingly, apart from a few places, uh, BIS occasionally, or once in a while, the IMF. You're not seeing much preoccupation with this continuous web of derivatives that just expands, although INET published some very good papers on you know, how that was insufficiently regulated yeah. e even, even now, really. And a number of scholars at the BIS, yeah. Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, have continued to pursue and illuminate what you might call the uh, flaws or inadequacy of reporting or restriction or whatever that leaves the world system at risk. I know our friend Michael Greenberger has often, he used to be at the CFTC, and he's often talked to me about the competition between reserve centers around the world. You have these places like London, like New York, Berlin, Paris, Shanghai, Hong Kong, what have you. They all want the business to go there. They all want the executives to be there. They want wealthy people and wealthy companies to enhance the value of the real estate in their cities. One of the ways they achieve that is by guaranteeing the executives at financial firms that if you do your business with us, the reporting, examination, and other requirements will be lessened relative to the other financial centers. And he, Michael Greenberger, studied how all kinds of positions that were held by the United States, so-called special purpose vehicles, things that uh, I would call the Enron problem, Jim Chanos illuminated very, very beautifully. And these guys keep their losses out from your awareness until such time that they're imploding and then the size and scale of the bailout they need, which was not apparent or understood by the regulators, explodes. Yeah, let's, but maybe we just quickly unpack that for folks. Sure. I mean, it's what might be called the um, financial reporting footnote problem. Yeah. <laughs> that is to say, there's more in the footnotes than there is in the 200 pages of report. Um, if you can actually unpack it, and it's highly coded. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's become as crazy as the tax code, and yes. for roughly the similar reasons. It's how extremely big investors get out of regulation. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this process is endemic, and we're not making a whole lot of progress on it, I think, um, there. Uh, I did just see the first articles appearing on what are essentially various proposed rules for European banks, and people are coming, well, you know what, those are a lot weaker than the American rules. Mm -hmm. Now, that's saying a lot, considering that, you know, we just had a runs on 
regional banks, and we've got and the crypto meltdown, which was just uh, mm -hmm. astonishing. Well, and Credit but, Suisse, uh, yeah, they're proposing weaker stuff. And there's well, you know, and the, and the one thing I actually saw this is remarkable for journalism because I almost never say this. Um, yeah, it's exactly what you just said that well, these people want big banks to come over there. Uh, I mean that this is uh, this should have been a G7 or a G20 problem that should have been worked on better than it has come out. Yes, um, I remember you and I worked at the Roosevelt Institute for a period of time, and they created a report that we all participated in called "Let Markets Be Markets." Yeah, and there was a gentleman named Portnoy who created a picture. I remember watching this when he presented it of what did it look like at Citigroup. Well, if you looked at the headquarters, the holding company, everything looked fine and all the earnings looked fine, except all the special purpose vehicles contained all of their vulnerability that required them to participate in the bailout. Oh. And he was saying that essentially we have created a system that's tolerating masking where our vulnerability is. My friend said that it was related, or our friend, Michael Greenberger, said it was related to the desire of financial centers to grow or seek oh, no, we, volume. We actually, but there were many dimensions to I, it. I think I can declassify this. Um, we actually had a researcher come to us and I asked for a grant, which um, I, we did support that particularly. And he, he said it. He talked to regulators. Then they were telling him exactly that. When I got the paper back from him, none of that was in there. <laughs> and I said... What the heck? You know, and it was perfectly obvious why he wasn't doing it. Um, and, you know, we didn't publish the paper. Uh, but this is the type of problem that, you know, if you're trying to do financial research, you face all the time. Um, and folks who, you know, think that somehow you can just leave this around to the regulators and everything is really under control, it's not. Yeah. Well, it's let's talk a little bit about an area that you've done a tremendous amount of work in, which is the role of money in politics. Oh, God. The idea yeah. that experts at universities where the endowment depends upon wealthy and powerful people supporting them, media which depends upon their advertisers, or politicians which depend upon contributions to assure their re-election. When you embed the market system in that media, that system of expertise, and that system of governance that's so dependent on money, there's a tremendous, what I'll call structural sense that people will be hiding from what they should do for the common good in order to ensure their own profitability and survival. Uh, I, of course, am shocked. <laughs> Just shocked to hear uh, that that... You, you were my teacher. Uh, I mean, no, no, I, I was your student. I, I, I get it. I mean, it is not a secret that Ithiel de Solapool took me out to lunch at MIT. I mean, Chomsky wrote it up years ago, and it was on the web for ages, so there's no point in even trying to deny it. And he said, look, kid, uh, he was actually trying to be nice to me, yeah. actually. Uh, he was a former chair, and you paid attention to what he said. He said, look, just, you know, do your historical stuff. Don't write about contemporary politics. Yeah. I said, thank you, and then 
wrote a bunch of articles about, well, both actually. Um, but yeah, they, you run into that problem all the time. I am now seeing academic articles in political science where people are trying to say, well, you know, all this money in politics, it's really signaling. Like you have to find a way to signal Congress. Well, if you want to go find a way to signal Congress, all right, throw one reception for them because they'll come and you'll get your signal. This is not what money in politics is doing. Mm -hmm. It's not a signal system. And that's like a satire on the human race for people at Yale. This was a Yale guy mm. uh, who mm. was pushing this line, not recently. Um, and the, the collapse of professional standards for criticism and critical evaluation here is really pretty grotesque. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's bad. Uh, but, um, I, I, well, all right. This problem does really need, though, to be addressed, and it's getting worse. And at the same time, the money in politics problem is partly one on the press, because the press won't cover this stuff either. Uh, I mean, the fact that Chuck Schumer's kid is uh, a leading lobbyist for private equity, well, that you should probably read about uh, from time to time. We're not reading about it, mm. Um, mm. Though, even though we're in the middle of a huge fight with private equity trying to avoid regulation by the SEC now. Um, and, and this is not a party story. This is a, I mean, there's large chunks of the Democratic Party and, as far as I can tell, virtually the whole of the Republican Party are in private equity's corner on this stuff um, there. So... Um, and the, the, but the press has gotten a lot worse on this. Part it's, I, I have to tell you, there are days that I wake up and I think, would it be so terrible if all these guys are replaced by Chat GPT? Um, <laughs> because people, I mean, what you have now, uh, it, I mean, I, I just give you a real example. I'm gonna, I'll disguise the names. A major news. I met a guy who was covering a presidential race from a major. American magazine. You'd all recognize it. Um, and this guy, he was a perfectly sensible being. He said, well, I'm an English major. And he said, I don't know anything about this stuff. Um, and I thought to myself, oh boy, what does that do? It leaves his editors free to rewrite the copy. There's When you actually study reporters, mm. there's several excellent papers on this. Some of the best by Daniel Chomsky on actually the New York Times. Uh, there, when uh, Turner Catledge was yet, he had the papers are in Mississippi. He wrote a great paper on uh, the, the rewrites, if you like. Um, the um, and uh, it puts the 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 folks are now under enormous time pressure uh, in the internet age to write fast. They can't do research. Um, the research consists of calling up a few folks, getting some views. You have, it, it's often the case, the list of phone numbers, and this, I'm not making this up, I have seen, it will come from folks they treat as their trusted folks who turn out to be strong ties to either, I mean, there's a rule, a kind of informal rule, you should have some Republicans and some Democrats uh, with ties to the national parties, and nowadays you have money is so pervasive in the national party system that they, they're subsidizing bloggers uh, and uh, various other stuff. And they just all sort of fall in line here. It's not just, however, monkey see, monkey do. It's monkey see, monkey do, and occasionally bananas get passed. Um, and so what you're seeing here is a kind of silence machine that uh, sometimes will, there'll be only a highly stylized discussion and you can pursue almost nothing in detail. 
Uh, and so you see, I mean, it's like, and so what you see, I mean, Bill White, actually, in a paper we published not too long ago, just noted that just how, how strongly correlated the market enthusiasm and the press is in all of these various cases of financial disaster. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very sharp observation, and it's exactly right. I mean, you're, you're really dealing with an interrelated system here, and you've got to treat it as such. And, and there is a kind of, I mean, and, and you know, not just to, not to, uh, so the key point just to reiterate one more time is, all right, what happens on that is you go until there is at least one catastrophe, and then you hope you can repair it. Because if you're going to misjudge, especially if you misjudge it, you know, you go to climate change, uh, where it seems clear to me that people have way underestimated what that they didn't take account. They, people knew the world was going to warm. Now, you're not, it's perfectly fair to say that, yeah, this is not just a question of global warming. You also have that, you know, Pacific Ocean current out there that happens to be in a bad, so it makes it, so maybe in a couple of years it might not be so terrible. But you know what? It's, it seems pretty obviously getting worse uh, as a trend. Um, and people are way underestimating the kinds of investments you'll have to make. You know, in, in Boston and other cities today, they're opening schools without air conditioning and small details like that. And it turned mm -hmm. out there was a federal program for assistance uh, that would allow you to help people who couldn't pay their well, mostly heating bills. Yes. Uh, you got air conditioning is turning into as important as uh, heat. Uh, and, you know, program budgeting doesn't really cover that. I mean, it was, it, you, technically you can do it, but if you drop the money on people in October, guess what, where most of the money is going to go for? Uh, it's in heating. I mean, this type of stuff is recurring everywhere together with weather, uh, local weather problems, which are, actually bigger deals overall than probably big hurricanes um, because you get the violence of storms is everywhere you know, the, the piece well I wrote it actually on climate change and INET uh, that sort of made a big point of this um, and uh, so people are way underestimating the problems and you can hope that as you get to a disaster the enough will change that it changes but maybe it didn't now that brings us back to Lehman. Let's sort of just walk through the key points here, which is, I, I think Lawrence... So you're saying, just so for clarification, there is an analogy about the neglect of what we should do for people in climate yep. that we can learn from the neglect or refraction of what we did do relative to what we should have done in, in the experience yeah. of Lehman Brothers. And the same with crypto and with the other issues in financial regulation right now. Okay. Yeah. Now, Good. let's just walk through. I agree with Ball, and, uh, you know, we agree then with ourselves in the sense that we did write this, and we wrote it back six or seven years ago yeah. uh, there, that this was basically a political call to let Lehman go. Mm -hmm. uh, that, as to paraphrase a famous line of uh, Hank Paulson's, he didn't want to be Mr. Bailout anymore. And I, right on the heels of the Republican convention, uh, which was a free market jamboree with McCain and everybody uh, denouncing, you know, bailouts of Fannie and Freddie and everything mm -hmm. else there. Okay. Um, so Bush and Paulson, you know, just then, and Ball shows you, they basically 
just say, we're not going to save it, and Bernanke and Geithner fall in line. Let me repeat that. Mm -hmm. uh, that the president and the treasury secretary make no. that make that call, and Geithner and okay. Bernanke fall in line. Yeah, and whereas Geithner is not yet the treasury secretary. He's, he's head, the of, the head of the New York, York Fed. Fed. Yeah, and, and Bernanke and is the head of the Fed. Fed. And yeah. the legal it's precisely the upside-down quality of the legal relationship, because the Fed should have been the only people to decide on whether they could apply their 13-3 rule uh, for a special bailout or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, instead, it's a po politics is overruling the Fed there. Um, now, uh, the question is then again, uh, in you know, in climate and such like that, are you going to have that type of situation or not? Now, in the financial system, we have this problem that the a lot of folks who had, I think, good intentions uh, were trying hard to uh, limit bailouts. Though I thought they thought, and I think I think you agree with me. We we all shared this view then and now that. You've got to prevent bank failures, but you shouldn't rescue bankers. Mm -hmm. and, and so they they rather got a little over enthusiastic. Bankers or even bank creditors yes. entirely. Yes, you, you can yes. Restructure bank, there's their no bonds. reason to save the stockholders. Yeah, uh, yeah. The yeah. So the um, there just should not be the equivalent of Medicare for all for banks. That's <laughs> insane. But that's what we've got. You know, it's mm -hmm. like we have one sector socialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's just the long and the short of it. Okay, mm -hmm. what they did in the revision of um, the legislation on emergency bailouts in Dodd-Frank was to actually further complicate the legal uh, rules for getting the bailout, uh, which was essentially now they require not just the Fed but the tr Treasury Secretary to sign off. Now, the Treasury Secretary is a political animal from the word go, whatever they uh, may think or say. And you could see that the politics of this got pretty squirrely just a few months ago in the regional, uh, when the runs on the regional banks occurred. Um, effectively, what, was the, what the authorities, meaning the Fed and the Treasury principally, but all the other folks who are now in these various councils, they were all, in effect, they had to steer around the fact that Republicans controlled the House, that they were nominally opposing bailouts, um, and that um, so they couldn't be exactly sure of what would happen if they actually tried to, to do uh, the equivalent of a layman bailout for any of these banks. So what they ended up doing was waiting for the emergency, declaring it an emergency, and then saying we're dealing with it on a case-by-case -case basis. That creates enormous uncertainty, and then you saw these runs, which as far as I can tell still happen in small places where people pulled the money out of the regional banks, dumped some of them dumped it, I think quite stupidly. This is like lemmings running down the wrong end of the cliff mm -hmm. uh, into money market funds, and everybody else rolled into big banks, like, you know, JP, no secret, J.P. Morgan Chase mm -hmm. uh, did that. Now, the striking thing about this is here we are in the middle of an, uh, a movement where we're trying to restore some antitrust powers and where the emphasis has been on the potential uh, baleful systemic influence of large banks. Now you're in a, setting up a situation where the only place you can be sure your money is secure for the Ed Cain yeah. reason uh, that you know, it's the, system, yeah. the system banks are the solution, uh, mm -hmm. the big ones. Um, is put them in there. 
this is crazy. This doesn't work, and it's, it's sitting out there now. This problem is not solved. The Europeans have a version of this problem, too, uh, in that they just haven't been able to get a single resolution authority through. I mean, they wrote legislation, didn't go through the European Parliament. They basically sit there uh, with one big uh, st uh, special fund that they could use, but basically their, their lender of last resort is midnight meetings of finance ministers, after the fact, like, does it, it, mm -hmm. what could go wrong? You know, I mean, it's just the long and the short of it. Yeah. It's, it's just like in climate. What can go wrong uh, if you all sit there and ignore all the danger signs, uh, and everybody says you're okay to do this, and you're getting paid uh, by folks as you run for Congress, president, and whatever? This is a mess. You're this, getting paid by people who benefit from but, the continued. Yeah. Um, big stake in the fuels. existing system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Big stake in the existing system. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, that's where it's a little bit different. In the financial system, you're protecting institutions where they become what you might call ultra-risky. In the case of climate change, you're protecting institutions so they don't have to change to evolve to the, we say, the challenges Mother Nature presents. That's right, yeah. Bo and both are about the money politics, yeah. but they're different. And then the mass politics of all of this is, um, it's a little different in each case. Like a lot of folks see the bailout of the super rich in the banking system, and they just quite legitimately go crazy. As somebody said, you know, they want Dirty Harry for president. They don't <laughs> want... And well, we'll let we'll let that tennis Clint ball Eastwood. go by there, there, and in the climate system, you're throwing lots of costs on ordinary people, um, and you're not addressing the sort of local daily needs with nearly enough money and uh, yes. in interest. I've had a couple of episodes with regard to climate change where I've been involved in panels and somebody once raised their hand and they said, we know a little bit about your history, you're from Detroit. Well, with globalization, automation and so forth, Detroit got destroyed. And we're sitting here in West Virginia and we agree with you that we gotta stop with coal and climate change, but we're not gonna join the party if we're just gonna get crushed. You gotta create adjustment assistance and then we'll become allies. Until that time, they're part of the resistance. And so I can see people not having faith that unless you're a big, powerful, concentrated interest, you're not going to be taken care of in the transformation. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd give the Biden administration credit, as I think you would, for some of its initiatives. Yes, yes. Many of its other initiatives are not so wonderful. Yeah. But I think with regard to finance, you had mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation about the Republican House. Yeah. The Republican House is recognizing something that my friends Alex Gibney and David Sirota created in an audible audiobook podcast. It's free. It was called Meltdown. And they didn't mean the meltdown of the financial markets. They meant the meltdown in trust and faith in governance because we paid the polluters, because we bailed out the power, and all of a sudden you had Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, then a Republican House, then a Republican Senate, and then Donald Trump was president. And so the despondency about taking care of the big guys is the music 
that the Republican House was dancing to in this last year, saying, we're not going to be part of those bailouts because they know how much yeah, no, the general public feels is, hurt right. by yeah. the concentrated power. Yeah. On, the, on the other hand, what they do behind their mask might be entirely well, different. Well, some of the, yes, and the, the, some of the energy on keeping down the deficit also taps into that sentiment. Yes. Um, that, that for sure is what uh, sits there. No, I think this is a very unstable disequilibrium. I mm -hmm. mean, you're just moving slowly down toward probably some new dramatic changes. And again, the, the cycle of catastrophe where Lehman becomes a kind of almost Aztec sacrifice <laughs> before you can just take the rest of the uh, elders and really bail them out. Uh, that yeah. stuff, you're likely to see more of this. I mean, uh, I, some, I, call, I refer to the schlock uh, and shock syndrome. Um, I mean, you just you, you, you read chat GPT journalism by live humans or chat GPT. It just doesn't matter. It hasn't got research. It doesn't have anything to say. And it just repeats what they're all reading on the Internet um, until you have a disaster. Then they have to go interview people. And then how, depending on how the population's taking it, something might or might not happen. Mm. It's a mm. mess. This is not... Uh, you know, if you want a happy ending, you know the answer to this. See a Disney movie. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't contemplate finance, climate change, medical care, or any of the other big problems that you can name. Let's, let's go back and say, here's the Lehman episode. If we had done it right, what would we have done at that time? Okay, what I think we would have done is precisely what I think you and I talked about at the time. <laughs> Actually, I mean, they, 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 we would not simply have just tied it the bank over. That would have solved the problem of bankruptcy mm -hmm. um, and kept up national income yeah. and that. But it didn't solve the moral hazard problem. Right. All the bankers who let, were participants in that situation should have been told to leave. Um, I mean, not just those folks. I mean, but the bail, the price for bailouts of all those other firms, of AIG, of Lehman, of Goldman, uh, sorry, uh, Wells Fargo, Gold, Goldman and, La and uh, Morgan Stanley, yeah, Wells, everybody, all the folks should have been told to leave. They should not have had their bonuses paid to them. Uh, it's not like we're condemning them to a life of penury. I'm not suggesting, you know, the, yeah, this is not Michelangelo's last judgment where mm -hmm. uh, over there and as you face them, it's on the right. Uh, you know, the, they're all descending into hell. This is not what we're suggesting. But you can't, you, you, you haven't got a financial system that can run without periodic bailouts. It's so fragile that its mm -hmm. fragility hits the Fed every time it has... Think, even now, as they raise rates, you know, you see all these folks looking, oh, my God, are our portfolios uh, going down in value in the bonds that we uh, did there? Um, and, and, and this question is being asked not just in the United States, but in Europe, all over Asia. You know, everybody was into this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you have a super fragile financial system. And, and if you, you need to address that, and it, it can't be they play and we pay. Mm -hmm. and, and so structurally, that's what should have happened in 2008. It didn't. 
structurally what should have happened is a change in the rules about examination, regulation, yeah. boundaries on what yeah. you can invest in and not invest yeah. in. And the mass, look, these guys, I mean, they, these are folks who usually say, well, you know, it's uh, creative destruction for the ordinary person when they lose their jobs um, and whatever. They should have lost theirs. Um, and, uh, you know, they would have found reemployment. They got lots of talents. Uh, they could be gainfully employed. I'm not, this is not a bill of attainer. I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, again, mm -hmm. we're not at Michelangelo yeah. uh, here. Uh, but you have a financial system that now works deliberately on as little capital as possible. The mere thought of making them hold more capital is, uh, attracts such protests uh, that, I mean, right now in Congress, this is a fight that's going on. Um, and, I mean, the Trump people rolled back uh, some of the capital rules. Yes. Uh, you know, they just did it. And they, they took back a lot of the other Dodd-Frank stuff, um, <clears throat> and, and earlier even, uh, with, the Demo with acquiescence from significant pieces of the Democratic Party and to the cheers of a lot of economists connected uh, mm. with that. Uh, this, it, it, this is a fr financial fragility that works by effectively... The, when you do this in monetary policy, it results often in just blowing bubbles is the only way you get Probably, uh, yeah. prosperity. Right. Um, but for instance, we might say you could focus on how the Reserve District Bank in San Francisco handled SVB in the three years leading yeah, up to didn't. that. Yeah. yeah, no, but yeah. The, the errors they made as an example, which leads to the reform of how supervision and regulation yeah, takes but place. Of course, there, there's been, to my knowledge, no reform. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. guy from SVB who was, I think, actually on the bank board, I believe, was he had some supervisory was on, the, on the board, board of, of directors. Yeah. Yes. Um, he got off. Mm -hmm. That's not exactly uh, what we're talking about here mm -hmm. as a reform. Yeah. But I, I guess my, yeah. in finishing this conversation, yeah. There is a basis for despondency, but we've got to find the way forward. We've got to yeah. find the way forward so that people regain their trust and faith in the society which they live. They feel their children's future will be better. And there, I think, is plentiful evidence, whether it's climate or whether it's finance, that we're not there. Yeah. They needed a revision what of Dodd-Frank do? on yeah. finance that actually is, is serious about addressing the defects in supervision and accounting uh, that mm -hmm. they you know they, they've got to this situation has got to end where the footnote is more important than the entire rest of the financial report mm -hmm. uh, that's crazy um, I mean and you know there you want how about that for a happy use of um, artificial intelligence you know just write decent financial reports uh, <laughs> and that uh, I, I hope to live to see that day uh, but yeah, we need a revision of Dodd-Frank, and you need a revision of political money rules, uh, and you're going to have to find some, I mean, the question of, of the public commons and the news media is so big, we'll have to do it some other time. But mm -hmm. they're clearly, you're dealing here with a system that is now in advanced disrepair. We can't keep going with schlock and shock. Let me uh, add one other dimension, which I think is important right now. We're talking as though 
repair within the nation state can take care of the problem. But one of the problems of globalization and what I'll call nanosecond redeployable capital yeah. is that the state sometimes doesn't have power because people can avoid taxation or people can avoid yeah. anything yeah. by redeploying yeah. to a place off, where off, there's offshore, offshore, offshore yeah. where there's less scrutiny or less pressure. No scrutiny at all unless yes, somebody leaks exactly. it. And so when I look at the studies of the BIS, they seem to show big, big markets. I'm talking about $60 trillion and more of things that are, how do I say, immersed in the intertwined shadow banking system. But have really, global shadow banking. Right. And yeah. we haven't knocked on the door of a global governance or of national governance so that the ex-ante awareness of the risks that are building is completely understood. So I think there's one thing which is improving the nation state in its relation to money politics scrutiny and working for the common good. But I also think we have a, we have a global architecture challenge right now vis-a-vis -vis finance oh, I, I, and, that is and enormous. Lots, yes. I, you know, it's, it's actually a valuable clarification. It's also true, unfortunately, that in this increasingly acrimonious multipolar uh, international economic system and just just multipolar international relations system, this is becoming a good deal harder. Yes, to to achieving agreement, whether it be on climate or finance regulation, is getting we're, much yeah, more difficult. Yeah, we're getting close to a situation of the League of Nations in the early 1930s. This mm -hmm. is not a wonderful situation to mm -hmm. be in. Yeah, but I, I wanted to point that out before yep. we quit yep. because I think that yep. internationalist dimension, I mean, there are some people who, uh, what you might call, look for glimmers of good news, saying how technology could be deployed to create a much more um, what do you say, strong and resilient low-cost system for monitoring all of the financial positions. That it, this isn't uh, something that's in the mystery hidden under the pillows on no, the couch I anymore. I agree. The AI to, should make it easier in right. theory. But in we have theory. to deploy these technologies for the common good. Yeah. And that's, again, related to your money politics question of whether we will make those kind of investments. Oh, exactly. Right. Good. Yeah. All right. Surpri not surprisingly, we agree. <laughs> any, uh, any last thoughts? Uh, I think uh, Lehman's wake-up call sets in motion many things, including the founding of INET. But I think there are, what do I call, parallels or analogies in other types and other sectors and there's a lot of work Yeah, it's to not do. like INET's work is done. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.